Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish, but they also have to pick one thing that they wish they could forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the comedy writer and actor, best known for the BBC One sitcom Ghosts, Lawrence Rickard. Lawrence has worked in the film and television industry for over 15 years, with credits which encompass both mainstream comedy, such as Armstrong and Miller, Tracy Ullman, Murder and Successful, Psycho Bitches and Paddington 2, and high-profile children's shows such as Dick and Dom, Peter Rabbit and Shaun the Sheep, Farmageddon. He was a principal writer and star of the historical sketch show Horrible Histories, which has won more than 20 major awards, including two National Comedy Awards, four successive BAFTAs, a Guinness World Record, I'll have you know, and the Prix Jeuneurs for the best children's show of the last 50 years. And I think I'd go along with that. Along with Ben Wilbon from Horrible Histories, he co-wrote the 2022 feature-length television comedy We Are Not Alone. Larry also continued to work with his other Horrible Histories co-stars and Ben, creating the critically acclaimed fantasy sitcom Yonderland, which ran for three series on Sky One. He's also moved into feature films, co-writing and starring in the movie Bill, a comic take on Shakespeare's missing years, again working with his Horrible Histories team which seems to have turned out to be a very good idea because in 2019 they wrote and performed in the BBC sitcom Ghosts with Larry as co-creator, writer and double star playing Robin the Caveman and the decapitated ghost Humphrey. Ghosts quickly became the most watched comedy on UK television and they even did a comic relief special featuring Kylie Minogue. The show has spawned an American cast version which is also a hit, of course, and a book. Ghosts, the Button House Archives, a must for all fans, available now. But that is just Larry's work. What are the things he treasures, or indeed loathes? Which of these will he choose to put in his time capsule? Well, here's our chance to find out as we listen to Lawrence Ricard's Time Capsule. Lawrence, my dear man. Hello, how are you doing? Oh, good, nice to see you. Are you well? I am, yes, in good form. Good. It's really lovely of you to do this for me. I'm sure you must be run off your feet at the moment. No, it's been it's been okay. It's been a bit of a busier summer than we'd expect, but it's all good stuff. Yeah, ghost stuff, and then we've got the 
book and we're doing sort of a companion podcast again so it's just sort of ramping up towards release but oh lovely that's a nice idea yeah when's that coming out um so we've got the book and the series should be out around the same time sort of october right. um and then the podcast goes out sort of each week alongside each episode yeah i've pre-ordered it i have to show excellent <laughs> good man from forbidden planet <laughs> yeah. because i there are certain books from television series that you still you're probably the same, you know, where you have yeah. certain programs that you just fall in love with. Yeah. I just occasionally I dip back into them. So I've got uh, the League of Gentlemen book mm-hmm. that first came yeah. out, and I will dip back into that. And it just takes me back to it, yeah. to the joy of discovering that program. Absolutely. And the other one is the Mighty Boosh book, which is fabulous hardback book. And yeah. I love it. No, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I mm. love that. All those sort of tie-in books always loved. I always remember the Python. I had. A, I loved the... Um, <laughs> yeah. Monty Python's Life of Brian book they did, which was mm-hmm. great. And, you know, script books as well, you know, all the Forty Towers scripts and things like yeah. that are still yeah. back to and the Hitchhikers. Yeah, I like it when they have sort of uh, coffee stains on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and personal notes, like, <laughs> can do better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. So, Lawrence, the, um, the idea of this podcast is that we talk about five things that you've chosen that you wish you had in a time capsule. Okay. Yeah. No worries. So, have you had a chance to think about that at all? I have. Thanks. You have? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Oh, brilliant. That's good. That makes it much easier. Yeah, yeah. I have, you know, I've done it a number of times where people go, okay, right. Um, well. Okay, let me think then, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> There's a very long pause. Yeah. So, anyway, let's see what yours are. Yeah. So, what's your first choice, Lawrence? Well, it's a very simple thing uh, that's now weirdly only a memory to me, uh, slightly sort of uh, conceptual, but it's silence. <laughs> <laughs> Through my own uh, naive stupidity and youth, decided to give myself tinnitus. Oh, no. Yeah, just, I mean, too too many gigs. And the mm. thing with tinnitus is you get a lot of shots across the bow that being young and foolish and normally drunk, you ignore. Yeah. And I, I wish I'd paid a bit more attention to a couple of them. Mm. Yeah, no, I went to, and it was sort of slightly against my better judgment anyway, I went to a really good friend of mine sort of called up and said his brother's band were playing this gig. And I, I was, I think I was um, probably like late 20s or something. And I, I think I'd been out the night before and I was in two minds about going anyway. Uh, were your ears still ringing? Yeah, I mean, that slightly from from mm. the night before you know mm-hmm. as you just get used to if you've been out for you know a gig or a club or anything so I, I went down to a really good gig and had a couple of um very nice pints <laughs> and at the time as i was i mean they were a loud band they were a proudly very loud band and as i was listening to them i was like oh, God, this is so loud it's almost painful and no <laughs> part of your brain goes hang on let's not let's do something about that and I remember seeing and ignoring the little pot that they put on the bar, you know, which no one did back at the time, of the little earplugs and yeah. just kind of not even thinking twice. <sighs> so since then, you kind of have to do a version of silence, which is the, the, the equivalent of silence for someone with tinnitus, which is the right sort of noise at the right sort of volume to kind yeah. of block it out. So, yeah, I mean... It's a weird thing, isn't it, to ignore your hearing? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a sort of an arrogance of youth. I have exactly the same problem. Right. And that would come from the same source, that I've been mm. either in something that was too loud, standing on stage with speakers behind me, yeah. or I've been to watch too many things and yeah, ignored yeah. it. Yeah. What's your particular sound? Mine is a very high-pitched squeak almost. Yeah. No, I have that. One, one ear is definitely that. The other one undulates a little. Ah, more, right. Yeah. So, I mean, cla- we've got the classic tinnitus, you know, yeah. the real, the, the, the goat original lineup tinnitus that is the, the high pitched <laughs> squeak. It's the one everyone wants. Yeah. I was standing in front of a stage the other day uh, deliberately because otherwise I wouldn't be able to hear it properly. So mm. I've got to the point where not only is there tinnitus, but also I'm getting hearing loss. Oh, yeah. As a result of all that. I've, I've kind of avoided that. So, I mean, my, I've had to, obviously, because of, you know, tinnitus and various attempts at treatment, none of which obviously work, as everyone mm. knows, but you give it a go, don't you? Um, <laughs> I've, I've kind of avoided hearing loss since, and I've got now every possible variation of earplug that you can try. Because mm. that's the other thing. I sort of didn't want it to go to stop me from 
going to do gigs because there's nothing worse than waking up the next morning once you've got it and it's got worse or it's changed and all that sort of habituation you've gone through to get used to it. And it kind of switches up the game. So, yeah, now I'm one of those people you see at gigs with those fancy things hanging out there. (laughs) Um, Or, in fact, you know, some children, mm. people take tiny children to festivals and things, and then they put great big headphones on their head to yeah. soften the sound. I mean, you can imagine what sort of a parent I am now, having got it. Yeah. That, you know, my poor son. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's a bit, a bit loud now. I'll put, I'll put your earphones on, mate. Don't become like daddy. I mean, that's a general rule. Don't yeah, become yeah. like daddy. <laughs> but particularly your hearing. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm, I'm a very strong advocate. If there's any uh, young people listening, wear earphones, put some earplugs in, folks. You'll still have a lovely evening. Yeah, quite. I don't blame you. It's a very good idea. What's the loudest gig you think you've ever been to? I think the loudest one I ever went to. I went. I think my first ever gig, my parents, when I was 11, took me to see Meatloaf <laughs> at the Brighton Centre. <laughs> it's your parents' fault. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've talked to them about it. They're aware of that. Yeah, we went. I remember my friends at school sort of taking the mick out. I mean, it's not even at the time. It was not a cool gig to go no. to. Um, <laughs> and and they, there was an advert that they, you know, like on regional television, they put adverts on. Yes. But they're very, very quick and very, very cheap. Mm. And it's obvious that the promoter had gone, you know, it wasn't when he was in his heyday. It was sort of in his fallow period. So we'd done mm. all those big early hits and it was before, you know, that sort of comeback in the 90s. And so he was sort of out, a bit out in the wilderness. And so you can imagine the promoter like getting in contact with these <laughs> local television channels and going, what's the least amount of airtime I can buy? <laughs> and what time can I put it on? They yeah, said, well, yeah. three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. some people I went to school with, had, and I'd sort of obviously told everyone, I'm going to go and see Meatloaf. And, you know, these other <laughs> more cool 11-year-olds going, what? had seen this advert. And it literally went, Meatloaf Concert Brighton Centre now, Meatloaf Concert Brighton Centre now. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that was it. That that was their advertising. And it was kind of brilliant. But yeah, we went two years in a row, my parents took me. And yeah. we all came out with like headache, our heads physically hurting <laughs> and our ears ringing. Yeah. It was a little bit like, you know, suntan in the 80s that no one seemed to be worrying about long-term effects of everything hearing included. Um, but it was incredible. That was an incredible show. I mean, God, even, even then when I say he was sort of slightly in his wilderness period, it was mm-hmm. like... Uh, you know, he gave it 110%. And yeah. coming on every song as a different character and costume changes and everything <laughs> was quite the thing. It goes on and on. Bat Out of Hell and I Would Do Anything for Love. That's just about a concert, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They go on forever. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to, when I was at university, me and my friend Amy, we, whenever there was a karaoke night at our union, we'd always do Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which is about eight <laughs> minutes long. And you could see, we'd get to the point where we'd just walk up to the stage and they hadn't even announced what we were doing and you would see people going, oh, God, it's those people. <laughs> they always do that eight-minute song. Um, and then me and my friend Neil always do um, scenes from an Italian restaurant by Billy Joel. It's about six and a half minutes. So. That's impossible, that song. Yeah, I've yeah. tried it. It's absolutely impossible to do as a karaoke it's, it song. Doesn't, you, can't, you can't breathe in it. But, you know, no. breathing's very much a luxury in karaoke. <laughs> and it's great. The people we do, you know, uh, once I've gone past university age and we were doing karaoke, people then got to love it when mm. I got up to do a song, because they would like to go out and have a cigarette and come back <laughs> and he will still be doing that song. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic fun. I love a bit of karaoke. I did Benidorm and we were mm. in Benidorm for months and months. And basically all you can do is go out and do karaoke. Yeah, yeah. It was great. So, um, all right, let's put tinnitus quietly <laughs> into the time capsule. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. It could either be tinnitus in there and locked away or silence in there as a beautiful golden memory, yeah. depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, let's put silence in mm. there as something you can revisit, maybe. <laughs> how lovely. Okay, right, that's number one. So what's your second item? Uh, it, it's a day, but I think it's a single day that I repeated several times across several consecutive birthdays in my early teens. Mm. And it was a day out in London where I would do two things and I would always insist on doing the same two things, neither of which you can do anymore, (laughs) which I think is why I look back on it so fondly because I can't revisit it and it remains perfect in my brain. Mm. And I would insist that we went to something called Rock Circus. Right. And Museum of the Moving Image on the South Bank, which were 
just sort of my two, I suppose, passions as, you know, as an early team were music and, you know, acting and film and this business mm. we call show. <laughs> and, yeah, Rock Circus was in the Trocadero Centre in Piccadilly. Yeah. And it was one of the two swords things. And it was basically, it was a big display of waxworks of all music icons, which now some of them seem really bizarre because obviously <laughs> it was people who were considered like classic icons in 1980, you know, 1987. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they would all be in it now. I remember, um, and it had Paul Gambaccini sort of was a little voice in your headphones that you took around with you talking about all these artists. <laughs> and like, I remember he was slightly, a lot of them were slightly sarcastic, like Rod Stewart. I think he, the, the music that would play when you're looking at the Rod Stewart waxwork was Maggie May, mm. but he, Paul Gambaccini would reference him doing, you know, do you think I'm sexy and that whole sort of 80 cycles of things and sort of go, yeah, you know, now of course he does these songs for which he's become famous, but look into those eyes somewhere deep in that soul is an artist. And it was like basically going, God bless him. He's a bit of a joke now, but it used to be great. Listen to Maggie May. everyone. <laughs> sort of true at the time. I think yeah. you think of sailing and things like that. Mm. Drive you mad, those songs. Well, it's kind of gone full circle. Now, obviously, mm. you know, great American songbook and all of that. But at the time, I think, you know, he was a slight figure of fun. And so it was really interesting seeing these artists at that time. Yeah. And also, I always remember that when you went to, they had um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel. And as you approached each of the figures, it, it, it told you who they were and the song that would be playing on your headphones. And it's always said, Simon and Garfunkel, the sound of silence. And there was nothing. <laughs> and it was like that every year I went, and I never knew if it was broken or if that was a joke. Yeah. And I thought I'm quite, I, thought I quite like the idea. Then. That's a very good idea, yeah. But the denouement of it was the Travelling Circus, which was an animatronic floor show of all of the artists that you couldn't see anymore. <sighs> and you were sort of on like a move, it's like a moving auditorium, you know, and, and it would be like... Um, you know, I think Hendrix was there. I know Janis Joplin was there, Bob Dylan. And then the, the kind of the finale of it was the Beatles mm. with the sort of full Sergeant Pepper's album cover as the setting. Oh, brilliant. Looking back on it, animatronics has come a long way in the last 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it was like seeing the Beatles, but it looked a little bit more like four guys trying to, help each other across the road after a long afternoon in Weatherspoons. <laughs> but at the time, you know, for me, it was like... They live, they live. They live, they really <laughs> do. Amazing. Um, so at that time, I suppose, people like Adam Ant would have been, well, obviously, yeah. therein, obviously. Yeah. And, and yet now, if they put together a sort of a history of pop music even, you wonder if that little burst of ant music would still yeah. be there, even though he's one of the people who played at Live Aid. No, it's really interesting, that sort of... It's, I suppose it's the same with all... When, I love seeing all those photos of the, the storeroom at the Swords with all of... The, you know, they don't keep the bodies, but they keep all the heads and yeah. going, wow, at one point, you know, you needed to have that guy on display because <laughs> it would have been in the absolute, you know, in the deer of public imagination and suddenly five years pass and you go, yeah, no one, no one remembers them anymore. No. And also just looking at those shelves and seeing a number of heads and going... I have no idea who that is. Yeah, absolutely. You would do that with almost all the politicians, wouldn't you? You'd go yeah, back yeah, yeah. and go, who's that? Yeah. yeah. And it's funny that when it's <laughs> like, um, you know, when I was growing up, I knew who everyone in the cabinet was because of Spitting Image. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was, if it was, went up to any child now and said, who's in the current cabinet? <laughs> they might be able to pick out the right prime minister, but beyond that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true. It is one of the points and one of the good points of satire is that actually, you know, it makes you aware of it. Mm. I mean, I think the whole world must be unaware of what the, the government are doing and what the cabinet are doing, because otherwise they'd be up in arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does explain a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we need to bring back spitting image more, I think. <laughs> yeah. So what about um, Mummy? Yes. I mean, it's in what's part of the BFI now, but, yeah, you used to go in like downstairs at that part of the big BFI building. And yeah, mm. it was a museum of artefacts from film and television. And, you know, I was always sort of interested in how stuff was made, mm. you know, the, the, the behind the scenes and special effects and sort of early cinema. And there were great displays about that there. 
And then this collection of props that were, I mean, it, I suppose, again, looking back, it's what you could get your hands on. Yeah. So some of them you looked at and they were immediately iconic and others really needed a little plaque next to them to go, <laughs> this was William Shatner's glove. <laughs> I remember they had like an egg from Alien and they had this like blue screen rig where you could, like a uh, green screen rig rather, where you could lie on it and it would project, live project a background of London sky and you could fly like Superman. Yeah. And they had like, you know, obviously they had had a Dalek and, and yeah. things like that. Could you do the fall? You know, that I seem to remember somewhere, and it may be at, at the Museum of Moving Image, that you could stand there and do the diehard oh, yeah. fall from, the, from the top. You could let go of an arm and you were the person falling away down to the floor. Yes. I don't think that was there because depressingly, I'm not sure that Die Hard had come out. Oh, <laughs> God, I feel, it makes me feel incredibly old. Well, yeah, because yeah. I, I think a lot of the, the stuff that was there, there is because there is an equivalent museum in, I think, Bradford, right, now, the yeah. sort of, you know, a national media museum. And I imagine a lot of what was there was moved across. But like yeah. they had all of the huge sort of vaguely animatronic fish that they used from the opening of Monty Python's Meaning of Life uh-huh. and things like that from there, you know. Um, which you kind of go, God, where are they now? Are they still in existence? <laughs> yeah, quite. Somebody's got them. Yeah. I'd hate to think there was a skip out the back of that place when they closed it. But I remember, you know, sort of having done this three years in a row and it getting to the following birthday and sort of saying to my parents, well, I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I think they both went in the same year that both of those opportunities, I were like, yeah, it turns out you and your friend Chris were the only people going there. <laughs> so they're, they're gone now. It didn't really cover its costs, no. No, apparently no. not. Although I, we, we do a lot of, you know, events at the BFI now and we sort of got snuck out the, the, the back way at the last preview thing we did there. Mm-hmm. And it was only as I was coming out the doors that I recognised the little sort of dial-shaped door handles. And I was like, this was the entrance to the museum of the moving image. It had this whole kind of childhood flashback. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, I went there with my teenage children, so I think it probably would have been about the same time. Okay. Yeah, because how old are you? I'm 48. 48. So my son is mm. just turning 40 and my daughter's 42. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so they would have been a bit younger than you, but I took mm. them to the both those places we visited, and I remember oh, right. them well. They were brilliant. Yeah. I loved them. But the Museum of Moving Image... That the thing that I remember is that, um, I'd have to confess, you may well know this, that I did an enormous number of adverts when I was young. I was absolutely shameless. <laughs> I, would, I would sell anything. And uh, there was a screen that just had a rolling thing of, of old adverts on it. Um, okay. My kids were very excited to spot me in about three of them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! Is, is is there one that you look back on with particular fondness? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know that's true, don't you? You know that's true. <laughs> yeah, there was. I did one for Dustbusters. Okay. Yeah, those little handheld yeah. vacuum mm-hmm. things that you bought around the house, and we mm. did a, an advert for that. And when I auditioned for it, I thought it was going to be tongue in cheek. When I got there, it turned out to be absolutely genuine that a family would right. dance around their living room, singing the joys of Dustbusters to the tune of Blockbusters by Sweet. Oh, okay. Mm. This sounds, this suddenly sounds incredibly familiar. <laughs> <laughs> right, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those things are, they stick in your head, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So there you are. But um, great places, sad loss, I think. Yeah. And also, where do all those props and all those sets and everything go? I mean, now you've finished doing ghosts. Yeah. Are you hanging on to things? Are they stored? Yes, we've got. Mm. I mean, some of of things have gone into storage Mm -hmm. because obviously a lot of things were being stored between series anyway. Some things we've got. I think Ben's got the captain's stick. Good. His swagger stick. I've yeah. got um, my own head. Uh, my, <laughs> my own head in a box. Brilliant. Which was brilliant. It was delivered. They sort of said, you know, do, would you like your your head? And I was like, well, of course. Well, it's a strangely arrogant thing to have. I, the two things I got were a portrait of me and my own head, uh, which are <laughs> both brilliant keepsakes and massively arrogant. But mm. um, the, they sort of said, oh, we'll get them sent to you. But they were sent in sort of a clear plastic box. And so the courier... <laughs> turned up at the door and my, my partner answered and he went, I've got your 
and it was a, the the portrait where my head's been sort of severed by a, yes. you know, a beam of light. So he goes, I've I've got your severed head portrait and your head in a box. <laughs> Very confused, by but I'm not bringing them in. No, exactly. <laughs> oh, that that's a lovely thing to have though. But I, I have to warn you because I have my head mm-hmm. for when they put on prosthetics. So you know that yeah. thing where they mould your head and then mm. they make the prosthetics around the mould? Well, I, I've yeah. got that head. And I now look at my 30-year-old face yeah. and I compare it with my 65 or 66-year-old face. And I can't remember how old I am. And <laughs> and uh, it's not a pleasant sight. No, well, I've got, I've got the same. I've got a couple of those sort of moulded faces from prosthetics. Mm-hmm. Although... Also, kind of aging was that, that when they came to do the cast, the cast for, for the head they'd made for series five of Ghosts, and I was sort of expecting to be, you know, covered in alginate as we'd always done it before. Yeah. And they turned up with their three D scanning kit, of course. Ah, yeah. Which was, I mean, an amazing process, and it sort of it, it renders it all live. So in, at the end of doing this process, you know, Max was able to sort of turn the laptop around and go, and there's there's your head in all its glory. Mm. So yeah, I've got sort of a a foam version of me, a, a very realistic silicon version, and somewhere out there, a virtual model. So there'll be <laughs> three ways in which I'll be able to depress myself as an older man. Yeah, you can imagine how pleased Robert Llewellyn was when yeah. <laughs> uh, when they finally invented that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Having gone through years and years of getting ready to be Crichton. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, I, a long time ago, got in touch with Hattrick Productions and said, I'm doing a charity auction. Do you have anything that you might be able to put into a charity? And they said, we have all the props and costumes from Father Ted. Oh, wow. And they were going to skip them. They were going to put them in a bin. Oh, my God. But you sort of go, well, there must have been many times in the past when those things were discarded. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it would be lovely to have them now. I remember talking to John Skunerad, who, who runs the live cast, who so did, did our sort of head cast, and they did a load of the work on uh, the puppets of Yonderland. And um, they were both up at Elstree Studios. And he said, you know, a number of times, particularly sort of a little earlier in his career, when there was an awful lot of film stuff that was still be using the, the bigger stages at Elstree. Mm. And he said, the number of times you'd come to a production and see a skip out the back and go, <laughs> oh, my God, they're throwing that away. And he was like... <laughs> There was never anyone from this company who was too big to go diving in a skip to, yeah. to rescue something, you know, and he's got all, all of these little gems like knocking around the workshop that were yeah. rescued from, from being, you know, stuck in land. Uh, we may be making Jurassic Park, but that's from Star Wars. I'm going in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but was a, there was an apocryph, there was a rumour that, that the original, uh, and it was, we spoke to several people who were based at the studio, and you got very, very differing um, versions of the story. But it was a rumour that the the big sort of mound out the back of the George Lucas stage was the f- original fiberglass Millennium Falcon oh. buried because they couldn't destroy it because it was uh, asbestos. Yeah. So they, they buried it. And people who worked at the studio, you never know whether they were winding you up, basically. <laughs> going, you see that big mound there? Millennium Falcon. <laughs> and I think I, cho- I chose to believe it was true because it's just too good a story. Yeah. But you've spent your entire life putting those things on, haven't you? And uh, yeah. I started my career doing that, but then it sort of stopped and I just played an old bloke. And so it, was, it was pointless, nothing they could do with me. But I miss those days. I miss those days yeah. of rushing into makeup and people putting a board cap on you and, uh, mm. and sticking moustaches on and, and you becoming a character. Yeah, And I like the fact that, as with all of you, you've clearly found a group of people who are like-minded in as much as that all of you are very happy to just not be yourself, become someone else, and you become secondary to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's taken yeah, a long yeah. time for all of you, in a way, to become recognisable. Mm. I mean, it's sort of, it's partly by design. I do, I mean, one, as I say, I've always sort of been interested in the behind-the-scenes aspect yeah. of things. So, in part, it is that I enjoy doing it. And also there is that slight thing of going, I, I just, it disguises you a little bit mm-hmm. from what you do when it comes to everyday life. Um, you know, like Jim and Ben, when they were shooting goats, because they also grew their own moustaches. Mm-hmm. You know, when they walked off set, they looked exactly like their characters did. Yeah. So there was there was no hiding, you know, if you went to a, a football match. No. I was sort of saying to Jim, I was like, do you ever get like recognised at the football? And he went, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's quite it's quite an undertaking going to watch a match when he's when he's shooting. 
But yeah, I mean, I love it. I think the guys, some of the guys have, you know, me and Martha always had the lion in, in Ghosts, had the lion's share of mm. the makeup. I had like a two-hour makeup call and Martha's was about an hour and a half. Yeah, and then I think Ben, Ben and Simon are probably the least keen on makeup. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> Everyone sort of when it came to today's where I was playing Humphrey, there was always that assumption that that was like a day off. But I hate that the only thing I can't stand is having that 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 lace glued to you when you've yeah. got fake facial hair. Mm-hmm. And so I found that far more irritating than having all of the caveman stuck on me because you know with with the um, prosthetics once they're glued on, I kind of forget they're there. Yeah. So even though it looks very, you know, people looking at me are like, oh my God, what happened to you? <laughs> but you completely forget it. Whereas that little beard, that little goatee beard sort mm-hmm. of drives you mad from the second it goes on to the second it comes off. Yeah, you sit at lunch eating carefully. Oh, drives you, you mad. Just can't, what is that? It's the way that the, the kind of the lace of a beard is glued up just around the corners of your mouth. So you can only <laughs> open your mouth about halfway. And so you're trying to do these weird little... <laughs> Petite mini bites, you know, a sausage roll. <laughs> and say to people, don't say anything funny. No, exactly. I, I know we're making a comedy, but don't make me laugh. Yeah. Yes. Well, I thought that just my little experience of doing it with you all, and I love the fact that as a team, you were so supportive of each other. And actually, whenever anybody was doing a scene that you weren't in, I mean, I know yeah. you were there in a sort of a producerial role and as a writer. But it was also clearly just an enthusiasm to watch other people perform. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's so much fun. You never quite know how something's going to be played. And when you think it's going to be one way, there's always a little curveball in there. Mm-hmm. And they're also, you know, just from when we're, we're sitting there and sometimes in the writer's room or sometimes when we're rehearsing, there are scenes where you go, that is going to be really problematic. There's no way they're getting through that. And, <laughs> and so it's kind of like you have to go and, and bear witness to it, see how many takes it yes. takes for them to, to, to get through that one. Yeah, no, I love it. I know. Well, it was great fun. So, um, yes, let's put those two gorgeous but now extinct buildings into the time capsule for you as a memory of your happy birthdays when you were a young boy. Absolutely. Good stuff. Okay, let's move on to item number three. Okay, you lucky people, it's ad break time. Well, what do you expect? We're not the BBC. But we'll be back before they can finish telling us what's coming up next. See you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. So while the BBC drone on about new drama series on iPlayer and things you can watch after the thing you're about to watch, as if you didn't know already, let's get back to Larry Rickard and the rest of the things he'd like in his time capsule. Well, item number three, we've really kind of segued into, which ah. is a, a lunch break, or rather many, many lunch breaks that have all completely merged into each other, <laughs> had across the space of five years in a tiny very non-salubrious dressing room at Twickenham Studios. And it's the lunch breaks, which I say in my mind all feel like one giant lunch break when we were shooting Horrible Histories, when the sort of the six of us first met, Mm. are just such an incredibly happy memory. 
we kind of, I mean, we, we still, as you say, on Ghosts as well, we still have fun to this day. Mm-hmm. And But I suppose as we've got older and sort of if we've progressed through what we uh, laughingly call our careers, we've kind <laughs> of, you know, we're more likely to have to jump on a quick Zoom call or, or to, you know, talk through a pressing rewrite or have a nap. And you wouldn't have had phones to look at during horrible Well, no, exactly. There was... <laughs> Mm. I think we just, I think we just about had, had just phones. Just might be a lot, text message. Yeah, I was going to say they were a lot bigger back then, but that's not true. That was it was probably the time of those tiny, tiny Nokia's that you could only <laughs> yes. operate with your little finger. <laughs> but just, I suppose, because we were kind of hired guns on on horrible histories, and you know, we didn't have that. You know, I, I was um, a writer on it, but the, the other guys weren't writing, weren't writing very much on that on that show, mm. and we didn't. You know, we weren't having to worry about anything behind the scenes and there were some stressed out producers who were dealing with that side of it you know there was no responsibility so when a lunch was called we'd go into a room and we'd always go in together which you know when we spoke to a lot of other people on sets of other things they were like what it gets to lunchtime and you didn't sort of automatically go off into your own little hutch and, mm-hmm. and we go no we kind of hang out and chat yeah and so we were just some sort of idiots in ridiculous wigs with an hour to kill and we just laughed <laughs> do you know i think that's a lost thing yeah uh, on set particularly because everybody says go to your caravan and i'll bring you your lunch and you sit on your own yeah. in these things so i i love the idea of a green room i'd rather mm. have that than a luxurious caravan i think it was sort of born of necessity we were always when we were on location we were always, you know, you have those little three-way vans, but we were always sharing them because, you know, we were on a CBBC budget back then. Mm-hmm. So you were always in with someone else, and that would change as the locations did. So you kind of get to hang out with each other, and that would always be who you would be with would be always changing. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to Twickenham Studios, which was always like a homecoming, it would be, you know, the only thing that was the same every single series. And they put we were kind of put into this weird sort of, hexagonal porter cabin that was hilariously called the white house (laughs) presumably by someone who had never seen the white house (laughs) and you know just rather than sort of try and find us all a room and pay the extra higher costs and that they kind of put us all in there together Mm. and so you know I, i remember there was a day where i laughed so hard it got to the end and we had to go back to work and my eyes hurt from laughing I mean, how many how many people can say that they've had that as an experience? And you know, well, at work as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, you what know. a joy. Yeah, but we are very fortunate in that way. Yes. I think. Yeah, everybody remembers the having to stand in freezing water for an hour and a half while they light yeah. a shot up. Yeah, exactly. And I quite like again. It's like with the makeup thing that you go. It's it's quite nice to be thrown a little challenge. Going well, what we were thinking is that you would climb up into that basket. Yeah, yeah, I'll give that a go. <laughs> you know, kind <laughs> yeah. of. Quite, quite game. And again, you know, being that little bit younger, I mean, we, yeah, we started together working together 15 years ago. And so, mm. and I think it's still, you know, despite that passage of time, obviously, you know, spending all that time in each other's pockets, there's always the odd moment of crosswords or bad tempers, but they remain just the greatest company. Mm. I think also that the fact that there's always two curses, I think, when it comes to careers, the people who go, I have no idea what I want to do. And it's very, very then hard to kind of find satisfaction with not sure where you're heading. Mm. And the people who know exactly what they want to do and then have the <laughs> frustration of not being able to do it. And, you know, I'd always known that I wanted to, to do comedy and having sort of struggled so long to try and get into that that world. It was the first thing I'd done where I was sort of felt like I was, you know, if not there on a potential path to it and with other people who you know, had that same passion that I did for it. Mm. It's great that you did stay together, Yeah, I think, because you could easily have gone, this is a fantastic time, but we all now have to go off and find our careers. Mm. But you went, no, hang on a minute, this works. This really Mm. works as a team. So it's brilliant you stuck together, I think. Well, I think, you know, as you know, there are sometimes there are shows where everyone gets on and then you see the show and go, it's such a shame that that turned out to be rubbish. (laughs) Or... Shows where they go down really, really well, but you go, that's amazing that went because no one got (laughs) (laughs) no smoke, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And within about two, two, I say partly from sort of being pushed together by circumstance into these weird shared rooms, but um, I think you know, within within the course of the first two, three weeks on the first series, it was clear that we all got along and that that was so unusual to be doing a job 
that seemed to be good and people getting along that we kind of went, when, when this stops, we should try and do something else. And we've mm. just kind of kept doing that. Yeah, very good. I, I auditioned years and years ago for John Cleese for a film. <laughs> and one of the first questions he asked me, he said, oh, you're in a review group, aren't you? And I said, well, sort of, yeah, we do a radio show together and we tour. And he said, um, good, good. Um, do you still get on with each other? And, and I said, yeah. Yeah, no, we're sort of best friends. And he went, oh, that's unusual. <laughs> yeah. And it just sort of it opened a whole vision of his world to me. And I thought, so that's, that's sad, really, mm. because they're absolutely remembered as this great team of people. Yeah. He obviously thought it was unusual. Yeah. So maybe we are lucky that that's happened. I think it is. I think it's the exception rather than the rule. I think as well, because we'd all sort of been in the business in various ways for a while, whether you know it was writing or sketch troops, whatever, I think you kind of, you'd seen the other side of it. Mm. And so finding something that worked, I think we were all a little bit more mindful and a bit more patient with each other. And in a mm. way that had we all been meeting up at 19, yeah. you know, and being a little bit more hot headed and devil may care, it might have been the sort of thing that broke down. But I think we all... We were all just long enough in the teeth to sort of see the the value in being together. Yes, and to say we we you know we're very 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 different people, but we all have a very similar sense of humour. And I think mm. that that being the thing that you've got in common is is incredibly helpful. Mm. You know, obviously for the job, but also just in terms of kind of the bonhomie that the thing you share being laughter is. It's uh, you know, it's good good for the soul. Yeah, and it's very clear that you all get on so well. It's lovely to be in your company. I have to say so. Um, Let's put those wonderful lunches. <laughs> I'm sure the food was disgusting. The food was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put those into the time capsule. That's a wonderful memory. Okay, so we've got one more thing that you want to put in to keep and one thing you want to bury. Yep. Well, uh, in my keep pile, mm -hmm. and this sort of paints me as a slightly more sentimental person than I think I am, but it's the arrival of my cats. Oh. Uh, which obviously there's a there's a root one upside to that, which is you get two very cute animals come to live with you, and who doesn't want that? And that's true. Um, but I think the reason I I reflect on it a lot, and I sort of it's it's a a day that I think back on, is it sort of said something, it, it demonstrated something a little quite profound to me, which is I'm a dyed in the wool dog guy. Mm. I'm a dog person. And I, I think when dog people meet people who suddenly go, oh, I've got a lovely little cat, there's a little bit of them that goes, oh, we don't get on. Or, oh, that's a shame. I thought I thought we were going to be friends. And, and same the other <laughs> way around. And, you know, I, I uh, you know, love dogs and I grew up with a dog. My brother's got dogs. And so when it came to sort of getting a pet that we, you know, obviously um, working, I've got a five-year-old son, you know, who was three at the time that mm -hmm. it was far more practical to go we should get cats and they sort of look after themselves a little bit more you haven't got it's not someone else to look after you haven't got to walk it and so i was like yeah i get it it makes practical sense let's do it and obviously i will pitch in and i'll help and i'll feed them or whatever but i'm you know they're not for me um <laughs> and i'm a busy man exactly i'm a busy man <laughs> i haven't got time to go petting any cats and you know what they're like and you know they're, they're very dismissive and they do their own thing anyway so they won't want to be around me mm -hmm. it'll be fine and I like the fact that having got to this age in life to sort of be able to, f something to happen that changes your stripes. I think <laughs> you, you, you do start to think that you've become, you know, the old dog with the new tricks and you are what you are now. And, mm -hmm. and um, to sort of have these things come into your life and go, uh, you're not what you think you are. And you can change and can change your outlook and everything else. And um, yeah, I am now ridiculous with them uh, <laughs> one has basically become my co-writer and has started invoicing me <laughs> and they're just yeah they're they're lovely and cute and great company and everything else but also to sort of to get you know to get to a point in life where a devout confirmed dog guy becomes a crazy cat person mm. just yeah it's, it, it sort of showed me that change even about something as sort of profound as yourself and your sense of self yeah, can can still happen. I know it's a very, you know, tiny and trite thing, but um, no, no. I mean, it's your childhood. It's your upbringing. Yeah. It's sort of. It's sort of. I've developed. This is who I am now, 
and this is what I think. And it's very mm. difficult to throw that away. And I think it is a great lesson in life to have that happen to you. I had exactly the same thing. I grew up a dog lover. My wife doesn't like dogs, so we didn't have pets. And then we had children, and they wanted pets. So it was agreed that a cat was easier. Mm. So we, same thing, got two cats. And I think they can sense <laughs> that you're not that bothered by them. Yeah. And they go, really? <laughs> I'll show you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You Agnostic, are you? Take some of this. Let me come yeah. on that lap. <laughs> yeah. And, and they turn you around. Yeah. My partner says the same. She was like, you know, she had cats and dogs growing up. And she was like, I was the cat person. It was like they came into the house and they were like, that's the guy that needs the work. And they just sort of, you know, it was like a yeah. pincer move. <laughs> The others are on our side, but this bloke, we've got to turn yeah, around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they did. Brilliant. I've just made, well, a slightly sad decision. Hmm. I'm just about to have a new back door put in, and the man said to me, do you want a cat flap? And I said, no. Oh, okay. And I've just got to that point right. where I don't really have any full-time commitments to anything. Hmm. And so I, I sort of thought, well, do I want to put that back into my life, that thing where I always yeah. have to think, who's going to feed the cat? Can we go away? So yeah, I yeah. said, no, it's gone. Yeah. That's quite sad. You know, that's the it end is, of it. No, but you're right. It is such a commitment. Or I could move. Of yeah, course. just that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can get, isn't, can't you like, I know you can kind of like basically do dog rental. Like, you know, <laughs> where you take your dog out for two hours and give it a nice day. And you yeah. get a nice day with a dog, which is quite a nice idea. <laughs> Short-term pet rental. But, yeah, I mean, it is, even with cats, which are a lot easier, it, it, it is a commitment. And it does, yeah. you know, when, when you want to be able to turn around at a moment's notice and go, let's go to Paris for five days. Mm. Of course, you will now never do that. But it's no. nice to have the option, right? Yeah, quite, yes. Although I do have grandchildren. So, uh, yes. yeah. <laughs> Those options are out. Yeah, so you, you do have pets. <laughs> I do have pets, really, yes. <laughs> they come round constantly and demand things of me. In fact, yeah. immediately after this, Larry, I have... Um, do people call you Larry or do they call you Lawrence? Uh, uh, both. And if the, if the question is, which do I prefer, I have no preference. All oh, right, That's all right, then. So I just, yeah. I just suddenly thought Larry's myself, fine. you might be thinking, where's this Larry come from? <laughs> Brenton Stevens, all of a sudden. Uh, no, no, mo most people call me Larry. My, my parents yeah. and my partner have, have held out. <laughs> yes, they do, don't they? Yeah, mm. all right then. Yeah, tomorrow I have an audition, a major audition, which would earn me a lot of money and would give me a year's employment. Right. So today, really, I should be concentrating on that. But instead, I'm taking my grandchildren swimming. Right, yeah. Which may well explain why I've never quite had the career that people thought I should have had. <laughs> have you prepped for this? No, but my grandchildren are very happy. <laughs> There's even a possibility, because I understand the parental care situation, that I may need to take two of them with me to the audition. <laughs> I think that will work in your favour. That guy wasn't great, but those kids were adorable. We love they? those they kids. Around. They'll be hanging around. Get them back in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It might work. No, they're not cats, so You know, children, they come and go, but cats are yeah. alive. <laughs> <laughs> So let's put that arrival of those two little kittens. Were they kittens? Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. So they, they yeah, immediately started work on the cuteness factor. Yeah, and also did that thing where they have that 10 minutes of madness, don't they, which is brilliant. Oh, yeah. And they just run. We've only had them about just over a year, mm. and they're still, I mean, thankfully, they're brother and sister, and they still really they get along and they're still very playful and mm -hmm. chase each other around the garden. So they've still, still got that slight kitten-likeness to them, which uh, That's does good. help to keep them adorable. Yeah, I had a brother and a sister, cat, as it were, a pair of cats, mm. and one of them eventually only lived in the bathroom. Okay. Yeah, they do that. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, my partner's the cat that they had growing up. Growing up, as it got older and older, it just started going in fewer and fewer rooms until mm. it, it basically it lived on, in the bathroom or on up on the sideboard in the kitchen, and it <laughs> would only drink from a dripping tap. <laughs> they are they weird. become so eccentric. <laughs> yes. No, the cat drank from the toilet. We, we had to leave the toilet seat up. Yeah. And uh, we had to put its food in there eventually. 
because it wouldn't come downstairs. Uh, yeah. Ridiculous, ridiculous thing to do. But that's the devotion you get for those cats. So, yes, let's put it into the time capsule for you. Excellent. Lovely. Okay, so finally, we just have to have the thing that you'd like to forget. Yes. Uh, this is slightly loaded and, I should say, comes with a number of caveats. Okay. But I'm going to say school days. <laughs> Controversial. No. Um, and I should say... I have some wonderful friends from that time to this day, mm. and there were bits of school that I thoroughly enjoyed, and I think I went to a pretty good school and I had some amazing teachers. Yeah. But <laughs> I just think, I think it's, it's partly because of the old adage about, you know, school days being the best days of your life. That I'm like, I think, one, it puts a lot of pressure on young people to find that age to be a magical time. Mm. And I remember people saying it to me at the time and me going, Really? What? Mm. And then after that, everything gets less good than this. <laughs> when what's actually happening for the most part is kind of this dizzying cocktail of like pressure and anxieties and exams and like social conundrums and bits of bullying. And, and I was like, you just sort of feel like going to young people being told that to go, do you know what? It's okay to just be basically agnostic about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that quite often people tell you that so often that in fact you end up believing it, that you come out yeah. of school going, best days of my life. And I think that actually if you reanalyze school, you're right, it is absolutely full of pressure and fear mm. and also feeling out of place. You never quite feel right, do you, at that age? No, I think I think that's the thing. And, and I say with people constantly sort of like grown-ups almost talking to you jealously about it. Mm -hmm. And they're going, really? And, and I just remember thinking exactly that, going, oh, God. I think that this is confusing and, for the most part, a little bit difficult and sometimes scary. And apparently after that, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> what have I signed up to here? And, and yeah. you know, when I think about the best times I've had, I'm not sure any of them were – I don't think any of them were at school. And I think precious few of them were probably, like, before the age of 16. You know, mm -hmm. I think most of my best days were after that. So I was just always – and I, I, I sort of check myself now and make sure that I try not to ever say that to to uh, any other young people, you know, particularly when you've, you you see children sort of piling pressure onto yourselves. And I always feel like just going, do you know what? Just I just get through it um, <laughs> and, and don't worry too much. And, oh, yeah, but I'm really worried about that subject. Yeah, you probably won't actually need that in life. And mm. I'm terrible at long division. Yeah, I wasn't very good at long division. It's fine. <laughs> I've never done it since, I know. Yeah, you know. I had that conversation just the other day with my grandson, who doesn't go yeah. to school. I mean, I've got two autistic grandchildren, and they don't go to school at the moment. And yet they right. seem, it seems to me, to be educating themselves better than they would have been educated at school. Yeah. I wonder if a lot of school is just discipline, in a way. Can we get this many kids to all move in the same direction? I think there's a lot of that. I think also, I think it probably has... You know, from my experience, through my son, you know, who's just started at school, um, I think just school has changed so much. It's It feels like it's so much more sort of based around the needs of children as opposed to going, let's get all of these square pegs into this round hole, that it's mm -hmm. a little bit more tailored to, to them. And it, it seems to be a far kinder place, yeah. I think, you know, mm -hmm. it, and... and um, a lot more kind of inclusive. I think things have changed to a great deal. Because obviously, I, mean, I don't know what it was like when you were at school. I think oh, I I just missed the era where you might get caned or hit with a slipper or something. Yeah, I didn't miss that. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think my 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 brother at one point got something thrown at him, and, right. and he was three years older, and I, I never got it. And so I think I literally, I was really cuspy on that. <laughs> but it meant that a lot of the teachers who were teaching me had still, <laughs> three years <laughs> earlier, had been caning people. Yes. And their personalities really gave you the sense that if they could work their will, <laughs> the canes, I mean, they'll say there were some brilliant ones, but there were a few where you could see their deep <laughs> resentment at having that tool taken away. Yeah, quite. They must have been sitting there grinding their teeth, thinking, oh, all that boy needs is a good cane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't have any of that. It was, um, I had some great teachers. 
but I also had some really horrible bullies. Mm. And they're the ones, in a way, strangely, who define who you become more than the great ones, sadly. Yeah. As a child, I spent my entire time avoiding things rather than throwing myself into them. Yes. I avoided situations because I was frightened of what the consequences might be. And it was only right at the end of school that I suddenly thought, do you know what? These people aren't that important. Yeah. And I suddenly got the nerve to go, no, actually, I'm quite a joker. And I yeah. started doing No, that. I think I think the same. And I think I think it's like it's interesting. I was sort of talking to someone about this the other day and sort of saying I was really late because my, my son's my son's off swimming this morning, in fact. Mm. And I was like, I was really late to learn to swim. My parent my parents didn't learn to swim until they were sort of adults. And so I think, you know, we never like I was gonna say thrown into the deep end, but I mean <laughs> metaphorically. Yes. Um, and so I learned to sort of whim quite late and I never really embraced maths. And then I sort of talking to someone, I realized that the teacher that I was most scared of at my first school would take us for swimming and maths. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it was just me trying to avoid spending time with this kind of dragon. It, of it's often that simple, I think. It really is yeah. often that simple. Absolutely. I had a French teacher who was terrifying. Right. I don't think he meant to be terrifying. I think he meant to try and teach us, but he didn't mm. really know how to do it in any sort of sympathetic or friendly way. He only understood in a way, Victorian values of right. sit there, listen, listen, yeah, take it in and repeat it. It's mm. that simple, boys. And if you didn't, or if you didn't understand that, or in fact, the pressure of him standing at the front saying, say back what I've just said, you'd think, yeah. oh, my God, it's in a foreign language. I have the faintest idea what he's talking about. I am useless at French. And I studied yeah. French from the age of 10 to 17. Yeah. No, same. And I am absolutely terrible at it. And I think at one point we had we had a lovely, lovely French teacher for the most part, but we had one at one point who would do that thing of not breaking character, only speaking French. Mm -hmm. And you kind of it's like trebling the pressure where they say something you do in French and you go, Oh, I haven't got it. And then <laughs> their question to you of going, Why aren't you answering me? was also in French. And you go, Right, mm -hmm. you've just doubled the pressure. And then everyone, <laughs> one by one, the whole class would kind of crumble. Yeah. And they go, Just break character, just say something reassuring in English and reset this. But they kind of <laughs> never do it. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, I absolutely understand what you're saying. Those school days, not because of any particular person or any particular thing that happened, just the sense of uncertainty around the whole mm. thing mm. i still have i still have every now and then have dreams where i'm at school uh, and i yeah and i wake up and it's not like i wake up and go oh it's not true and it was lovely i always wake up and i'm so relieved <laughs> so that's that's probably quite telling yeah quite yeah no i think the friends you make at school is rather like the friends you made in the trenches in the first world War. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're fellow survivors exactly. we got through it together yeah <laughs> brilliant Larry, it's absolutely lovely to see you and fantastic of you to do this for me. I'm really delighted to have you as a guest on my time capsule. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely to catch up. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Larry Rickard. Many thanks to Larry for being our guest and to you for listening. If you enjoyed yourself and would like more, then why not subscribe to this podcast? If you do, we'll send you every new episode as it's available for you to enjoy at your leisure. Please rate and possibly review the podcast. And if you like the theme tune and want to hear more, the full version is available on Spotify. It's 46 hours long and comes in 15 movements. Rather like me getting out of a chair these days. I'm on social media, just about, if you want to find me and have a pleasant chat, as is my time capsule, quite independently, so anything it says online is nothing to do with me, and vice versa, I'm bloody sure. There are links in the description of this episode to various things, Viva, the children's theatre group we support, Acast Plus, where you can get this podcast ad-free, and of course, The Ghost's Book. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Still, talking of ghosts, no, weren't we? Well, we are now. Um, I'm a bit frightened of ghosts, he says, rather obviously setting up a joke to finish with. I once had to go into this very dark tunnel, and I have to say, I was a bit scared. So I said, Yoo-hoo! And this weird voice replied, Yoo-hoo! So I said it again, Yoo-hoo! And once again, the voice came back, Yoo-hoo! but closer and louder. So I peered into the tunnel and I went, yoo-hoo, and I was hit by a train. 
Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 